Pray with me. God, thanks uh, for your goodness and your grace. Thank you that we sang that truth today, that we are your children. We're grateful for your fatherhood, for your creativity, for your provision, for your grace to us, for your omnipresence and also for your ever-presence. In every move we make, every breath we breathe, just as Andy reminded us that your word says, in you we live and move and have our being. Speak to us now through your word, O God, in the name of Christ, the people of God together said, amen. If you have a Bible, I hope you do, open it to John chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat back in front of you. You can look on with a friend. You can use your device. There's free Wi-Fi in the sanctuary. John chapter 12. If you uh, are unfamiliar kind of with where we are, let me catch you up. There's 66 books in the Bible. Four of them are biographies of the life of Jesus. One of them, a man named John wrote. John began to follow Jesus, hang out with Jesus, run with Jesus. When he was about 16 years old, he became Jesus' best friend in a lot of ways. John was about 30, 35-ish when Jesus was crucified, uh, resurrected. uh, Sorry, when 30, 35, he was um, just a few years older than that, like 20. When Jesus was crucified, resurrected, and ascended into heaven, Jesus was about 33 when that happened. And John lived well into his 80s. And so when he was uh, an older man, he wrote this biography of the life of Jesus. And the point of the biography is that he wants to convince you to place your active trust in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and by doing so, have life in his name. What we've covered so far is John 1 through 11, where John kind of sets us up with an introductory remark. And then he starts talking about what Jesus taught and what miracles he did and what kind of man he was and how he interacted with different types types of people. And then he comes to John chapter 12 and you can feel him begin to pump the brakes on the pace of the gospel because chapters 1 through 11 have covered three years. In fact, because the book begins, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, it's covered from the beginning all the way up through uh, year three of Jesus' ministry. But but the next chapters, 12 through 20, are going to really slow down and just cover the last week of Jesus' life. The first thing that happens the last week of Jesus' life is Mary anoints his feet with oil. This is just after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the the dead. Jesus is hanging out in a city called Bethany, little village, about two miles from Jerusalem. He's going back and forth from Jerusalem celebrating Passover. And that's where we pick up our story in John chapter 12, verse 9. John writes this. He says, when the Jews, or when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, that's in Bethany and in Jerusalem, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. This is funny to me. Like, Just in case you're unaware, Lazarus, the one he raised from the dead. We're all familiar with who Lazarus is, but that's fine, okay? Because we just watched Jesus raise this guy from the dead just last chapter. So the chief priest, that's the religious experts, made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Why? Because on account of him, many of the Jews are going away and believing in Jesus. See, they're ticked at Lazarus now as well. They're making plans to put Jesus to death and Lazarus. So the next day... The large crowd that had come from the fe- come to the feast, that's Passover, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand those things at first when Jesus was glorified. Then they remembered these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. 
The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. There's a couple things happening in this passage, a couple things going on, and I want to deal with them one piece at a time. The first thing is this, is that our kind of interaction with, with Lazarus, our learning about Lazarus and about how Jesus interacts with, with Lazarus is coming to a close. John's about to kind of tie a bow on that. What do we know about Lazarus? What does Lazarus teach us? What does Jesus' interaction with Lazarus teach us? And that kind of happens at the first and at the end, or the third part of this section. It's called a pericope. So the end of Lazarus' story happens at the first and the third part. And then here in the middle, that middle chunk, is what theologians refer to and Christians have referred to as the triumphal entry. It's Jesus' last time he comes into the city of Jerusalem riding on a young donkey. So what's happening there? What's going on there? What does John want us to know? And before we go any further, I just want to tell you, in both of those cases, both the end of Lazarus' story and in Jesus' triumphal entry, what John wants us to do is see an exalted Christ who is in control, who is king, to place our trust in that Jesus as the author and giver of life. And by doing that, we would receive life from his name. This passage, just like every other one in John, moves us toward his ultimate purpose, that that we would experience life and life abundantly that Jesus offers by placing our trust in him. Okay, so let's start with Lazarus. That's, that's hard to say. Let's start with Lazarus. Uh, let's start with Lazarus. No, let's start with Lazarus. And we're going to learn a little bit about him and kind of tie a bow on that story. Before we get there, remember that in the book of John, physical mirror, miracles mirror spiritual miracles. Physical miracles mirror spiritual miracles. Here's what that means. In John chapter 6, there's lots of people, multitudes, over 10,000 probably come to hear Jesus. They all get hungry. Jesus takes a couple of loaves of bread, a couple of fish, and he feeds all those people. Everybody eats as much as they want, and there are leftovers afterward. I love leftovers. This is great. And then Jesus goes, I'm the bread of life. You see how his statement about himself and what he does from a spiritual perspective coincides with what he's just done from a physical perspective? You with me? Okay, and then in John chapter 11, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus, come forth. I don't know that's how his voice sounded, but whatever. Lazarus, come forth. And this man who's been dead in a tomb three days comes out still wearing his grave clothes. See, right before Jesus called him out of the tomb, he made this statement, I am the Resurrection and the life. You see how the physical miracles and the spiritual miracles coincide? What he's doing physically, he's teaching us something spiritually. So let's look back at the passage. It says, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came. Not only account of him, to all, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. See, here's what John wants us to know. As he ties a bow on this Lazarus story, he wants to remind us one more time Jesus' purpose and mission for his life. It was so crystal clear and so resolute. And here it is. Jesus came to make dead people alive. Jesus came to make dead people alive. Now, he proves that he can do that from a spiritual perspective by doing it from a physical perspective. He proves that he's the resurrection and the life, and any man that comes to him shall live and never die. Just a moment later when he says, Lazarus, come forth, and dude comes out with grave clothes still on him. Jesus goes, you see? 
He doesn't pull a, you see, he doesn't say, he doesn't say, I told you so. He's just using that physical miracle to vindicate, to prove that he can give life and life abundantly. This is life from a spiritual perspective. This is life from an emotional perspective. This is life from a relational perspective. This is life from every perspective. Jesus comes to rescue us from death and bring us into life. This notion is repeated throughout the scripture. John's already talked about it in verse five. He, he quotes Jesus as saying, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He doesn't come into judgment, but he has passed from what? Death to life. You see that transition. Paul affirms the same in Ephesians. Look up here on the screen. He says, you were dead in, the tres in your trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. See, Jesus came to make dead people alive. Jesus came to make dead people alive. And we read that and we go, okay, well, that makes sense. And I kind of get that, at least in some sense, some kind of big, broad spiritual sense. I get that. I want to contrast this statement with a couple of statements that it might feel like we believe sometimes. Or it might feel like to the world, if they say, what did Jesus came? Here's what they might learn from Christians about why Jesus came and about Jesus' purpose in your life. We've just affirmed Jesus came to make dead people alive. That's his purpose. Jesus did not come to make bad people good. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He didn't. Jesus is not preaching a gospel of behavior modification. Jesus didn't come so you would clean up your act. That's not why Jesus came. And you hear people say this all the time. Well, I can't come to church because, you know, I'm an immoral person. Great. So are the rest of us. Come to church. It's not about you bad people being good. It's about dead people receiving life. Now, if we kind of wrap our minds around this, I am telling you, it changes the gospel that we preach. It changes the way we interact with one another. It changes the way we think about God's spirit and the spirit's role in our life. It changes the way we live on our, our Christian life. It changes so many things. For me personally, because a lot of times I get trapped in this, well, Christians are good moral people. And yes, I get that. I agree with that. But leave that there just for a minute. Just leave it here. I get that. I get trapped in that sometimes and I get trapped as if that that's the mission of God in your life to make bad people good. And, 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 and I get because I get trapped in that and trapped in that thinking, I'm not able to think from a God and a Christocentric perspective in issues that I come into contact with. I'll give you an example. I was in Africa a number of years ago. I was in Ken, uh, Kenya, I wasn't in Kenya, I was in Tanzania, and I had an opportunity to interact with a group of people called Maasai. Do you know what the Maasai are? It's an indigenous group of people in Africa. So if you think about the cover of like, you know, National Geographic magazine or something like that, if you were looking at indigenous people in Africa with kind of like, you know, these big long things on and a spear and they had big uh, gauges in their ears and the women with the neck extending things and I mean like, you know, leather sandals that they made and a bunch of jewelry that they made. I mean, these guys were living in grass and mud huts. Uh, one of their, I asked one time, uh, you have this big gate around your compound and you have a little door on it. What's the, and it, and it wasn't, the door didn't close, just an opening. Well, what's the opening for? Oh, it's so the lions don't get in. I said, okay, well, that's terrifying and fascinating, but it seems to me like a lion could actually get through that thing. Oh yeah, they most definitely can't, but once they kill a goat that's inside, they can't get the goat out, so they don't come in. I'm thinking, 
I really like to be able to lock a deadbolt. I mean, that's just kind of how I feel. I mean, this is, a, this is a crazy, I mean, this is an amazing life that these folks are living. So they asked me one Sunday if I wanted to preach in this Maasai church, and I said, sure. You know, I didn't ask for clarity of, you know, whatever is happening. I go there, and they have to translate into two different languages, all this stuff, and I meet the pastor, and this guy was fascinating because he was a Maasai warrior when he converted to Christianity uh, through the work of a missionary there. And when he converted to Christianity, he did, uh, well, what happened to him was what happened on a regular basis in the New Testament. He and all his household converted. You may have read that in Acts before. He and all his household converted. Well, in this particular case, he and all his household meant he, his four wives, and all his children converted to Christianity. And then over the next three, five, six, eight, nine, twelve months, he began to grow in Jesus and he began to feel a call to pastoral ministry. Now that area, the area in Africa where the Maasai live, like they need pastors, they need Maasai pastors. So it's a lot like the early church, maybe people who haven't been walking with Jesus for 30, 40 years and have all their morality zipped up or whatever become pastors, but this guy wanted to become a pastor. So I asked the missionaries, I'm like, what'd you do? (laughs) Don't you say to a guy like, hey, You've got four wives. That's not even practical, you know, much less biblical. Like, like most of us can't do a great job with one, right? And you got four. Like that's, you know, what do you do? How do you have that conversation? And, and, and they responded to me in this way. It's, it's interesting, and I'll paraphrase. Luke, that's A, above our pay grade. Our job is not to convict. That's the Spirit's job. B, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. So I'm not going to tell this guy, Jesus' will for your life is that you would stop this, that you would stop polygamy, that you would stop this, because, because then he starts to believe that that's Jesus' end game, to make bad people good. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. What did he come to do? He came to make dead people alive. So our goal in that moment was to help him receive life from Jesus. And not only him, his four wives and all his kids. What can we do to help you receive life from Jesus? They started to read the word together. They were doing family devotionals with four wives every morning. All their children reading about this love that God has for them, this unconditional love, regardless of their background and history. And then they came to a passage that starts to talk about the biblical definition of marriage. And they looked at each other and said, let's read that together again. (laughs) They said, Maybe the life that Jesus has for us is not best expressed in this situation. Well, yeah, it's not. So what are we going to do? What the man decided to do, because the Holy Spirit of God convicted him, is retain the vows that he had with the very first woman that he married. For the three subsequent that he took vows with after the fact, he uh, released them and said, go live your life, take the children, and, and you go do what you're going to do. Those three individuals are now remarried to Christians. They live all across Africa, and that pastor sends money to them on a regular basis and visits his friends, or visit his ex-wives <laughs> and his children on a regular basis and has a great relationship with them. Now look, I couldn't have come up with that. Only Jesus could have come up with that solution. And if I would have got involved, these missionaries would have got involved and said, Jesus came to make bad people good. You need to do the right thing, do the good thing. We might have caused him to do something that wasn't that amazing, wasn't that brilliant, wasn't that special. 
And Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. I shared that story with a couple elders on Friday. And one of our elders uh, indicated, he said, you know what? When it comes to Christians, a lot of us Christians have been walking with Jesus for a long time. We're really comfortable. It's like, well, I'm glad they got that figured out. Like that story came to a real nice conclusion, didn't it? Mm, yes, Jesus. You know, and then we feel good about it. Look, there are people in your life that are still maybe doing things that aren't moral. But they are receiving life from Jesus and they're learning and they're growing and the spirit of God convicting them about that and shifting and changing that is not your job. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. Jesus didn't come to make hard lives easy. Jesus didn't come to remove difficulty and challenge. Jesus didn't come so that everything would be hunky-dory for you. He's not a cosmic genie where you rub a lamp and he says, "Woo, let me sing a song and then grant you three wishes. Jesus came to give you life and life abundantly, even in the midst of difficulty. Jesus didn't come to make fun people boring. Now you giggle because you know it's true that there are a lot of Christians out there and you say, man, this is Jesus' job in your life, to make you a boring person because you are not fun to be around. You say you have the joy of the Lord or somebody needs to tell your face. Like, this is, this is bad. Jesus did not come to make fun people boring. He came to give life and give it abundantly. Jesus did not come to make wild people tame. Artists, I want to talk specifically to you. A lot of the times in church and in culture, especially Christian subculture, we tend to squash artistry and creativity. We get afraid of it. It's wild and woolly, right? Like Jesus came to empower that in you, to enable that in you, to fuel that in you. And the rest of us that are not artists, I am not. Like, I don't like the smell of patchouli oil. I get my hair cut every 10 days. Like, I'm not an artist, all right? That's just who I am. Like, I'm not an artist. But I got artist friends in my life. I'm married to one. It's hard. She's weird. I mean, real weird. Sinful and weird. I mean, it's, no, I'm totally kidding. I'm totally kidding. She is weird. I'll tell you that. But she's an artiste. And sometimes I, I don't do a great job fueling that in her and catalyzing that in her because because I, I just, it's, it's hard for me. It's difficult for me. But Jesus comes along and says, I didn't come to make wild people tame. I came to fuel that artistry. I came to fuel that creativity. In fact, you know where she gets that, Luke? She gets it from me. Because I'm creative and I made her in my image. I came to give dead people life. That's what I came to do. It changes the way we interact with our spouse. It changes the way we interact with our children. It changes what we expect out of other people. It changes the way we share our faith. Jesus just invites you to life. Why don't I clean up my act first? Nope, come find life. And what happens when individuals find life? Let's keep reading. It says that when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came. Not only account of him, but also to see Lazarus. So it's not just about Jesus anymore. It's about this death to life story that Lazarus has been telling. He's been telling people, I'm like, hey, there are four days of my life. I don't really remember. Why? Because I was dead. He's been telling people that. And on account of him, people are coming to see 
Jesus. Let's keep going. It says the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. They came, this crowd of people. The first century historian Josephus tells us that about 2.6 million people would have converged on Jerusalem for the Passover. This is a large crowd of people. Even thousands of people are coming to Jesus. And the reason why is because of this sign. The Pharisees even said, you know, the whole world is going after him. These are masses of people. And among those, uh, what, what John will tell us at the end of the passage in verses 20 and 21 that we didn't read today was a group of Greeks, not necessarily Gentile converts to Judaism, but Gentiles, those who were far from God, came to Philip and said, we wish to see Jesus. Can you set up an interview for us? We're going to have our people talk to your people, but you're Jesus' people. Call them. Let us know. We need to see the guy. We need to hear about this guy. We have got to see this Jesus. Here's why. Because new life attracts the world. New life attracts the world. New life attracts people who are far from Jesus. In this case, it was the Greeks. In this case, it was the crowds in Jerusalem. And when we start to tell our death to life story, when we start to tell about how we were lost and now we're found, not about how we were bad and now we're good, but about how we were dead and now we are alive, that begins to attract people to Jesus, not just on his account, but also on Lazarus' account, also on your account. I would encourage you to think about how you tell your death to life story. When you get an opportunity to share the gospel, are you telling it and are you telling people about the life that you've now experienced in Jesus? See, that draws sinners. That draws the folks that you'd see at a bar. That draws the marginalized. That draws, in Jesus' case, prostitutes and drunks. That draws tax collectors and thieves. It draws the world and attracts them because they know they need new life. But religious people, people that trust in their own self-righteousness, people who trust in their own goodness, they don't even think Jesus came to make bad people good. Why? Because I'm, I'm already pretty good. I don't even need Jesus. See, they respond in a different way. Let's look how the religious people respond. It says, so the chief priests, that's the religious professionals, made plans to put Lazarus to death. That's pretty aggressive. And I also think it's kind of funny. I think Lazarus, like if I was Lazarus, my response would be like, well, happened once. <laughs> like, Jesus will fix it, right? That's beside the point. It has nothing to do with my sermon. Because on account of him, many of the Jews are going away and believing. So look, at, here's what the religious leaders are saying. They're saying, oh my gosh, because of Lazarus' death to life story, all these people, not just Jews, but Gentiles, all these people are being attracted to Jesus and putting their faith and trust in him. Let's kill him. So expect this. When you begin to tell your death to life story and tell people about how Jesus saved you, expect that the world would be attracted to that and expect that your new life story is going to tick some religious people off. That's what happens all throughout the scripture. This is not a one-time thing. People who trust in their own righteousness, people who trust in their own church attendance, people who trust in their own Bible memory skills get ticked off. When people begin to experience new life and new life in Jesus. I got a friend that uh, uh, when I was leading college ministry, I was 20, 21 years old, we were doing music and, and it began to attract all kinds of people to this college ministry. It was, it was crazy. And uh, this individual converted out of kind of a 
club scene, party scene, dancing scene, and she came to Jesus and began to experience new life in Jesus. And she was like four weeks out of this scene, uh, and she would come to this worship service, and it was, you know, similar to the music we play here, a lot louder, by the way, but uh, whatever. And there's about five or 600 people in the room, and she was in the back dancing. And, and let me tell you a couple things. She hadn't yet replaced all her clothes from the previous life. You reading between the lines on that one? Okay. And she hadn't yet replaced all her dance moves from the previous life. Are you reading between the lines on that one? Okay. Now, some might think that was inappropriate. If you think it's inappropriate, read the story of David dancing before the Lord. Okay. She didn't go that far. But, but, but she, she bumped up against that ceiling. Why? Because she found new life in Jesus. And, and, and the part of me that celebrates new life and the part of me that celebrates what God can do in a life looked at that and went, that's awesome, celebrate it. I'm not gonna look, but you do you. You know, you do your thing. But celebrate because I, I, my job is not to make bad people good. And, and, and Jesus didn't come to do that anyway. He didn't come to make fun people boring. He didn't come to do any of that stuff. He came to give people new life. But the religious part of me, I'll be honest with you, religious part of me, I get a little ticked off. Well, who does she think she is wearing that? Who does she think she is dancing that way? Who does that guy think he is calling himself a Christian and living with somebody who's not his spouse? Who does that person think they are calling themselves a Christian and also saying they're gay? Who do they, who do they think they are? Look, understand, what I'm saying is not that God gives license or permission for those things. What I'm saying is that he came to give life and give it abundantly, not to make bad people good. I'll leave it there and just let it stew. And if you're in the room like me and you're thinking, man, that kind of ticks me off. Maybe that's the little religious self-righteous side. Maybe, maybe. It is in me a lot of times. I'll just, be confess, I'll just confess and say, that is in me a lot of times. Let's keep reading. It says, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. See, I love this, is that these folks who have seen Lazarus' death to life story, who have observed it, who have heard about it, begin to talk about what Jesus had done. Uh, the Bible even says that the next day, uh, with the large crowd that had come to the feast to Jerusalem, heard, they heard why? Because Lazarus had been talking about it, because the crowd had been talking about it, because people who were in Bethany when it happened had been talking about it. See, new life causes you to start to talk. You know, I don't, I, it, doesn't, it doesn't excite me to tell people about a Jesus that makes bad people good. Jesus can come and fix all your problems, or not fix all your problems, but to cause you to change from immorality to morality. Most of my immoral friends would say, my immoral life is pretty fun. I'm not interested in changing. But if I came to them and said, Jesus comes to bring life and life abundantly, see, maybe they'd be interested in that. And, and that's much more fun for me to talk about. See, when I experience that life in Christ, it causes me to be a megaphone for Jesus. It causes me to be a megaphone for this God who came in the flesh to give us life and give it abundantly. See, this passage here is all about new life and experiencing the very same thing that Lazarus did, being rescued out of our old life and new life being given to us in so many ways. Now, 
The bow is tied on our Lazarus story. I want to look really quickly at the triumphal entry because I think this is a brilliant thing that John does. This passage is so rich. There's so much here that I can't get into, but I want to point out a couple of things. So here's what happened. When the crowd heard, they took palm branches and went to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Okay, two things. What's happening here is that Jesus sitting on a donkey, entering into Jerusalem. Thousands of people likely are coming and laying palm fronds before him, which is kind of a symbol of his kingdom and his rule and reign. They're acknowledging him as king, but understand that their perceptions and expectations of what he would do as a king is different than what he did as a king. But they're still acknowledging it. They're still acknowledging it. Second thing I want you to see is that uh, John points out here as it is written, as it is written, that Jesus is riding on a young colt, a young donkey, into Jerusalem, and he says, as it is written, what he's pointing out is that what's happening here has been talked about already in the Old Testament. What we're seeing transpire before us, what I'm recording for you, it's happening just as it was already written. See, several hundred years before, a prophet named Zechariah had written about this very thing and had written about uh, the Messiah, the Christ, not necessarily Jesus of Nazareth at this point. We don't know it's Jesus. What we know is God is sending a redeemer, a rescuer, and he writes about that rescuer riding into Jerusalem. So in order to understand what Jesus is doing, doing here and riding into Jerusalem on the on the uh, colt of a donkey on the full or on, on a donkey's colt on a young uh, donkey w- what we got to understand is what Zechariah says in Zechariah chapter 9 hundreds of years before look what Zechariah says he says rejoice greatly o daughter of zion shout aloud o daughter of jerusalem behold your king is coming this is hundreds of years right before jesus and is righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, John repeats for us twice that Jesus is on a young donkey or on a donkey's colt. He wants us to know that this is a fulfillment of prophecy. He wants to repeat that so that we understand, oh, Zechariah chapter nine. Yeah, okay, so who is this king, Jesus? What does he bring here and now? What did Zechariah prophesy about him? Let's see here, keep going says that, uh, sorry, I'll just uh, keep going. Next verse. Sorry, I wanted to skip that one. Next verse. Uh, He says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. So here's the deal. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem as king. They're acknowledging him, shouting out, Hosanna to the son of David. Jesus, this bringer of new life, is not riding on a war horse. He's riding on a donkey. Not just a donkey, a young donkey. Like this is the opposite of everything you would have expected. He's not bringing in war. He's not bringing in an iron fist like the Roman Empire did. He's bringing in humility and gentleness and tenderness, humbleness of heart. And in bringing that new life, uh, what Zechariah tells us is this, this new king brings peace to the nations. 
The new life that Jesus brings, brings peace. When we experience new life in Christ, when we root ourselves in him, we experience peace internally and even peace externally. When Jesus is ruling and reigning and in command, we experience peace. Look around the world where there is no peace. Jesus is not acknowledged as king in those situations. When the rulers of nations clash against one another and cause war and ride in on a war horse or a tank or whatever, they're not modeling their lives after this humble king who rode in on the foal of a donkey. And like I said, it's not just external, it's internal. When we submit our lives to the rule and reign of this humble king, that new life that he gives us brings peace. Keep reading in Zechariah. He says, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless Pit. So the second thing that this new life brings, according to Zechariah, is that new life brings freedom. New life brings freedom from chains. New life brings freedom from addiction. New life brings freedom from anxiety. New life brings freedom from that brokenness that we feel inside. New life brings freedom from worry. Freedom from how am I going to control the, the consequences. Freedom from worry about finances. Freedom from worry about where I'm going to spend my eternity. All that is solved in this humble king riding on a donkey's colt. The last thing that Zechariah tells us is this. Now, return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I, will, I declare that I will restore to you double. In, order, in other words, this new life that the new king brings brings restoration. It brings restoration double. Not even bring you back to neutral, but poor blessing, as Malachi would say, pressed down, shaken, overflowing because of Jesus and because of who he is and his kingdom. I mean, he turns all of our expectations on, on its head. Instead of coming in to rule with an iron fist, instead of riding in on a war horse, which you very well could have done and had every right to do. No, he fulfilled prophecy by riding in on a donkey's colt so that he could bring that new life that we long for. Uh, one verse to wrap it up, and then uh, I want to just encourage you with something. I love that the disciples say uh, that they didn't understand these things at first. So for some of you, like even coming in the room right now, like, man, oh, man, like, I wouldn't have got that. I wouldn't have got Zechariah 9. That's a crazy connection. Good. The disciples didn't either, so don't panic, okay? The disciples didn't either. We're fine. They didn't get it. But when Jesus was glorified, they remembered I even recall this story in, in the book of Luke where Jesus is walking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And Luke tells us that from the Old Testament all the way through, he tells them how he fulfilled every prophecy, how he was the fulfillment, as we said last week, how he was the jello that filled up Old Testament forms and that uh, replaced the temple and so many other things. And in this case, uh, why he rode in on a colt, on a young donkey, was to fulfill prophecy. When he was glorified, they remembered these things. Last thing, and then I'll let you go. So the question is, if Jesus brings new life, if Jesus didn't come to make bad people good or fun people boring, if Jesus didn't come to make wild people tame, if Jesus came to bring new life and life abundantly, and that new life and submission to the king brings peace in our lives, bring joy in our lives, bring a lack of fear in our lives, brings freedom in our lives, bring restoration and abundance in our lives, then how do we tap into that new life Jesus offers? We take a cue from the crowd. When he rode into Jerusalem, they shouted, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. This word, Hosanna, is a transliteration of a Hebrew word, and it simply means God save now. God save now. 
So if we want to experience that new life in Christ, we simply call out to him, God save now. We call upon the Lord, the giver of life. We call upon the Lord, the giver of life. We say, Hosanna, God save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. God save us. God save me. God save my kid. God save my marriage. God save. God save. The last 10 days or so for me have been um, the most stressful 10 days that I can remember over the last, I don't know, 20 years probably, <laughs> something like that. Um, a couple of things are going on in our life, a couple of big things. One is uh, we're preparing for a second adoption. Uh, this baby, or a baby's due August 4. We've had two adoptions fail over the last two summers, and birth mom changed their mind. Uh, we didn't take a baby home the last two summers from Florida, so uh, coming into the potential of a third adoption. So either I'm going to have a baby at the house where is crying and waking me up at night and can't go to the bathroom on his own and, you know, not sleep at all, or the adoption's going to fall through. Either way, that's stressful, don't you think? All right. So in the midst of that, here's what's really stressful. In the midst of that, we get word just about a week ago from the state of Florida that there are two new requirements that every adoptive family has to have in the state of Florida. One of them is a record of every 911 call you've made from your residents over the last five years. And I'm thinking, well, I'm glad things didn't go sideways with the fireworks because we would have had to call 911, right? So I, I get on the horn with the city of Scottsdale where we lived before this, and, uh, and they're able to provide me with that documentation. I go into York Region Police Department, and I fill out the re requisite paperwork to get that documentation, and I say, what's the typical turnaround time for one of these things? They say, about 30 days. And I say, well, I got a baby due in 10. Like, can you expedite it? Can you get it to me any quicker? Uh, maybe like 28? I'm like... <laughs> Sometimes I wish Jesus came to make stupid people smart, but it's fine. It's fine. God loves her. Um, made in his image. Marred, but made in his image. Um, and she was really sweet to me. I, I, like, I, I joke, but she was really, really sweet to me, really, really kind to me. But now I've got a requirement that I can't meet. Maybe I have a requirement that we can't meet, so we're trying to figure that out. Uh, the other thing is I had to provide that there have been no records of injunction or orders of protection out against me or Amy in Scottsdale or here uh, in, in uh, York Region for the last five years. So I call Scottsdale and they're like, oh, absolutely. We, we'll show you how to do that on our website. I got on the website. I go into York Region, the courthouse up in Newmarket, and I tell them I need something that says this. And, and they looked at me like this. We don't know what that is. I'm like, what do you mean we don't, you don't know what that document is? Like, no, we don't understand the words that are coming out of your mouth. Like, the York region, the Canada and U.S. don't share the same language, right? So I'm going, like, I don't think this is like a Canadianism, right? Like an A thing. Like, it just, it's records of injunction, orders of protection. I don't understand that. Can you print out a thing that says that I'm nice? Or I don't know. Like, no, no, we can't do any of that. So all they can do is they, they, they show me this computer where you search your name on their internal records. And it's an internal computer. It's not available on a website or outside. It's an internal network. So I go search my name, and it pops up. Yeah, there are no cases out against you. I'm like, well, I mean, that's... A relief, but not a surprise, right? So here's what I do. I film myself with my phone, searching my name and give it to our homestead. I'm like, 
will this suffice? Like this is what the baby do in like 10 days and we're trying to figure out if we can't get this documentation to them and it's not sufficient for their purposes or they're going to place the baby with us, it's, a little bit, it's been a little stressful, okay? At the very same time, we're selling our house in Phoenix. We've had renters in it for the last five years. It, like I like Toronto now. Let's just, do, let's just get done, right? Let's get it over with. We've had renters in it. We're selling it. We're committing here. So, um, so we're selling the house and... And we get the house like under contract and somebody puts an offer in and the whole thing is supposed to close August 1st. And then last week, my realtor, who's Amy's uncle, calls me and says, do you know that there's a violation on your home in your community HOA? That's Homeowners Association. People that kind of monitor, do you have weeds in your yard? Do you have like a, like a 1962 Chevy Impala up on blocks in your yard? You need to get that out of there, all that stuff. Okay, so they said, your paint's not good on the outside of your house anymore. You need to get your house painted. I'm like, okay, and that house won't close unless you clear that violation and deal with it. I said, okay, great. My house is supposed to close in 10 days. So how do I get this done? Well, you submit a form, all forms, everything. I got to fill out 900 forms, right? The form is like 39 pages long. I kid you not. It's like 39 pages long. You have to get approval to paint your house before you paint your house. And you may not legally begin work on that house until you've completed that form and been approved. I'm going, sweet. So my house is supposed to close in 10 days. I got to get this done. Uh, how long does it take to get approval? Oh, about 45 days. <laughs> They're hiring at the New Market Courthouse, if you want to, is what I, what I wanted to tell the person, because apparently all you guys don't care. 45 days, 45 days. All right, 45 days. So now I got to get approval on this thing. I got to get a contractor out to paint my house for a chunk of change, right? It's like, so much more Canadian than it is U.S. Anyway, I got I to pay out the ear to get this thing done or my house won't close. And if it doesn't, then I got, I got more months of mortgages on the thing because I don't have renters in there anymore, right? I, I got you know, to put the thing back on the market again and get it sold again. Just in case anyone wants to make a cash offer on a home in Phoenix, let me know. I'm happy to cut you a deal. Get this thing done and over with. Um. Sometimes what I do in those situations is I control, right? Just get the thing done, call and yell at people if you need to, publish the documents, publish the forms, get it done, get it over with, tick the boxes, buckle down, grit your teeth, make it happen. See, what Jesus offers us is a whole different way forward. He says, why don't you call upon the Lord, the giver of life? Call out Hosanna, God save and for some of you, you listen to my stories like, ah, oh, I can get that that's stressful, but like, you know, you're probably going to get a new baby and your house is going to probably get sold, but my marriage is falling apart. I get it. Call upon the Lord, the giver of life. Okay, Luke, you, your life's stressful and you got a lot of stuff going on. It's okay, but my, my kids have gone completely wacko. I mean, it's, it's party, it's drugs, it's, you know, I'm not sure where they're coming or going. I, I don't know what's going on. Call upon the Lord, the giver of life. Some of you may be thinking, what's going on with me inside is crazy. I can't control my mood. It's up and down. Bipolar, clinical depression, anxiety. I, what's happening inside of me? You know, I just, I just, it's so overwhelming. Call upon the Lord, the giver of life. Call out to him, Hosanna. Release control. Take a deep breath. Jesus came to give you life, and give you life abundantly. And his invitation is to call out to him in the midst of stress and anxiety, in the midst of difficulty and challenge, in the midst of brokenness and hurt and pain and anger and confusion, in the midst of all that stuff. 
Your humble king comes riding into your life on a donkey's colt, not on a war horse. The author and giver of life. And our response is to call out to him, God save. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the opportunity to worship you today, to hear from your word. We're grateful for your presence here. We're grateful for your invitation that we can call upon you and receive the life that you promised. And as we do that, we know that you'll change us. We know that you'll conform us into your likeness. We know that you'll give us peace. We may not always know it in our heart, feel it, but we trust in you, O oh God, to bring freedom and peace and abundance and redemption and restoration as we call upon you. In Jesus' name, the people of God said, amen. Let's stand and sing.